following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is the word of the Lord. If you open your Bible in the New Testament, um, the first books or of the, of the New Testament that you'll find are the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what these gospel accounts are doing are really shining a spotlight on who Jesus is, um, what he said, and what he did. And, and one of the things that you see a constant between all of the gospels is the fact that Jesus announces the kingdom of God is at hand. That Jesus comes and he's proclaiming this message that the kingdom is near. And, and it's been interesting that as you reflect on church history and go through the different eras of the church age, there has always been some sort of truncation, trunk, truncation, yep, that's a thing, or, or a minimization or a misunderstanding around the meaning of the kingdom of God, right? This question of what is the kingdom of God? Now, in Jesus' time, as he announced the arrival of a kingdom, the people in that era thought Jesus was announcing the arrival of a political kingdom. At that time in history, Israel was under um, the, the oppression of Rome. Rome was the superpower of the world. Um, Israel was oppressed by it in a sense. They longed to be an autonomous state. And they thought that when Jesus was announcing the kingdom, that's what Jesus was bringing. He's bringing liberation to the people of Israel for them to, to be known as God's people once again, free from oppression. And we see this in the triumphal entry when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a colt. The people are saying, Hosanna, and, and really uh, their hope is that Jesus would be the one to step back upon King David's throne, that God would establish Israel once again as the greatest kingdom of the world and, and to have that person who would oppose Caesar. Now, as that whole event goes on, clearly we see in the Gospels that, that a political kingdom was not Jesus' aim. He didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom here on earth because he came to assert himself the king of heaven and earth. He took not an earthly throne, but his throne in heaven. And so we see this where Jesus has asserted himself as the king of heaven, and we sort of, we minimize that, or, or we make this dichotomy between heaven and earth, that, that, God, or that Jesus came to deal with spiritual matters, and that physical matters on earth are for human domain, that, that God has his territory, and there's the territory of mankind and human affairs, 
After all, Jesus came casting out demons, doing spiritual things like preaching the message of, of the good news, came to make disciples, and he told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And so there's a sense to the kingdom of God that is indeed a spiritual kingdom. But this dichotomy makes us think that the kingdom of God is primarily or even exclusively a spiritual matter. Now, the kingdom of God is indeed a spiritual matter, but, but, but what happens when we narrow the vision, when we, we discard the physical nature of Jesus' kingship, we're left with a church that really focuses on, on just doing spiritual things. A church that is only about seeing people saved and, and doing spiritual things, Bible studies, and, and caring for one another here in this sort of uh, inward-focused group. Now, listen, it's good. Like, the, the, the mission of the church is to make disciples, and there's a sense where, where we're, we're evangelizing, we're sharing the good news, we're, we're developing one another as disciples, but that's only a part of the domain of the kingdom of God. See, God's mission is bigger than just seeing people move from, from the domain of darkness, as, as Paul speaks of it in previous verses, into the kingdom of the beloved son. It's, just, it's more than just a spiritual matter. It actually is an all-encompassing thing. After all, in Jesus' ministry, you see it in the Gospels, he came to heal the sick. He came and he calmed storms. He fed the hungry. In fact, Jesus was embodied in the flesh. The incarnate God put on flesh. He put on a physical body. And so what verses 19 through 20, what we're looking at today uh, in this passage in Colossians chapter one, keeps us from truncating our gospel. It keeps us from, from truncating, from minimizing the extent and the domain of the kingdom of God. And it shows us that God's kingdom, the lordship of Jesus, his preeminent reign is not just over the spiritual matters, but it's also over the physical world. And the way that Paul frames this for us is in, in the discussion of reconciliation. He says God in Christ is reconciling all things to himself. So today we're gonna to focus on this topic of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled? And as we unpack that, I wanna show you the, the result of reconciliation, the range of reconciliation, and our response to reconciliation. And so I would love for you to open up your Bibles, the Pew Bibles there, I'll tell you what page it's on, page 572, that's Colossians chapter one, and we're gonna take a look at Verses 19 through 20. That's really where the bulk of our text is, uh, our focus is today. Let me, let, me just, let me just read it real quick here. Verses 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, Verses 19 through 20 are, are really just carrying on the thought that the Apostle Paul began back in verses 15 through 18. We spent a great deal of time in those verses last week. If you missed it, I highly recommend going back and listening to the podcast because it really sets the whole stage for what is unfolding here, not only in this chunk of scripture, but for the rest of, of the letter that Paul has written. 
And really what Paul did in the previous three, verse, three or four verses was, was showing us who Jesus is. Verse 15 said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Verse 19 says that in him, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That Jesus was both God and man. He, he was both human fully and both fully God. And as God, Jesus contains all power. We see this, he creates, this power in creation. He creates, and we see his power in sustaining. We see his power in holding all things together. In fact, the the final assertion of, of verse 18 is that Jesus is preeminent, that he's supreme over all things. In fact, Jesus is the center of the universe. He holds everything together. And wherever that truth is recognized, wherever the preeminence of Jesus exists and is honored, it's in that place where there's harmony and flourishing. And and case example A would be in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter one and two, where we see how Jesus created all things. God, the Trinity is creating all things. And in this place, he created a special place for man in the Garden of Eden. That, that man would have everything that he would need. That, that it was a place where man got to experience an intimacy with God. They would take walks in the cool of the day together. That, that there was no separation. There, there was just complete and total access. And, and in this garden, there was flourishing. Plants thrived. Animals were enjoying their life. They didn't have to look over their shoulder thinking that a predator is going to attack them. It was this beautiful, serene, tranquil place. That is until the story takes a turn in Genesis chapter three, where all of that beauty, all that harmony starts to deteriorate. And and the event that caused this deterioration, that caused this fracture in the world was when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they rejected or even dismissed Jesus' preeminence. But they said, you know what? I want to be God. I don't want to just be made in the likeness and image of God. I want to be God. They're pushing him out of the center of the universe, and they're asserting their own place as the center of their own world. Now, the effects of this, the consequences of this are are tragic. Now Adam and Eve went from cool walks in the day where they enjoyed God. Now they're at enmity with God. There's conflict. There's this turmoil between them. And though we were created by God for God, right, to be with him, to enjoy him, now there's this sense where God and his creation are incompatible with one another, right? That, that if, God and his, if God were a computer and creation were a hard drive or, a, or, 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 you know, a USB drive and you tried to put them together, you would get an error message that says, incompatible, this does not work. It's because the sin, the rebellion of Adam and Eve fractured all things. Now, primarily this affects our relationship with God, but, but it, it, it sinks in deeper and deeper that it actually affects all of creation. The entire cosmos is suffering because of the acts, the rebellious acts of humanity. And it reaches far. I mean, our marriages, parenting now is, is difficult. Our bodies, we experience all kinds of fallout, our health suffers. We have this 
unhealthy work and rest dynamic either. We're, we're too lazy or we work too hard and we make it an idol. We, we start to see um, difficulty in sleeping. Like the things that are meant to recharge us actually become exhausting to us. And it isn't just in, in within our own little personal bubble where we see these effects, but actually it reaches through all of societal structures. We see it affecting how sin affects our politics. We see it in racial and social injustice in perpetual and systemic poverty through tribalism. Like, the effects of sin are devastating. I think if you don't have a biblical worldview, you don't understand why things are as bad as they are. Right? And a biblical worldview allows us to acknowledge the futility of things as they are. We don't have to be optimists about the world and say, oh, everything's honky-dory. At least it's better than it was before because that's not actually true because if you want to go all the way back to history, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, everything was right. right? God created all things good, right, and perfect, and all of it came undone. Now, Jesus could have scrapped creation, restarted it, right? It's kind of like what I do with my kids' toys. If it's broken, I just toss it out, right? Sorry, buddy. But that's, that's how it is. It's broken, I toss it. We'll get something new. But Jesus doesn't take that approach. Jesus shows his preeminence. Jesus shows his power by recreating, by reconciling what was broken. See, that's what verse 20 is getting after, It says, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. He's not just scrapping it. He's not throwing creation out and starting fresh, brand new. He's taking what has been broken, and he's making it. He's renewing it. He's he's making it better, even better than it was before. See, the word that's used for this, and, and there's, there's a connection here between the word reconcile, which we see here in our passage, and the word renew, and, and I'll try to unpack that as we go, but, but let me ask this question. What does it mean to reconcile? What does it mean to be reconciled or, or experience reconciliation? Now, the, the place that's most, this, this concept most vividly is expressed is within the context of our in, interpersonal relationships. It's where there are two parties, and at one point, one of the parties or both of the parties hurt or offend one or the other. And because of this hurt, because of the sin really is what the cause of it is, there's this fallout, there's a lack of trust, you're experiencing a distancing of one another, right? They kind of push away. This bond that they had in friendship was broken. Now, I think that there's this tendency that we have to deal with our problems that isn't really dealing with our problems, specifically with our relational problems, where we just sweep stuff under the rug. Like, oh, you know, you hurt me, but it's too messy. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to. I don't want to acknowledge it. I don't want to talk to you about it. You kind of take, you sidestep the issue, and instead you sweep it under, under the rug. And, And that works temporarily. Like, like it's, it's a very brief relief because really when you sweep it under the rug, what happens, it becomes a, a breeding ground for mistrust, for bitterness, right? Because the issue isn't resolved. It's still there. It's just under the surface now. And eventually it brings about more pain. But 
Reconciliation, on the other hand, instead of sidestepping the whole thing, reconciliation steps into the mess. It it says, okay, here's a problem. Here's the conflict that we have. And instead of sidestepping it or or just cutting off ties, it says, "I, I want to restore us to the status of friends. Like, I want what's broken to be mended back together. I don't want this to keep going and to be broken and compound with the futility of this relationship. I want things to be better again, if not stronger than ever. And so reconciliation actually goes beyond forgiveness. A lot of times, that, that's what we think of, like, reconciliation, um, thinking, like, synonymous with forgiveness, but, but that's not actually the case. That, that forgiveness and reconciliation are actually two different things. And let me show you how. Forgiveness relinquishes charges against the other person and it says, you can go on your way. It says, yeah, you've hurt me. Yeah, you've sinned against me. I can acknowledge that. But listen, I, I I don't want to reconnect. I don't have that desire to reconnect. In fact, like, I'm actually okay with you moving on. Um... Now, like, that's okay. That's okay. Like, there, there are going to be some people, there are going to be some relationships where the hurt is so traumatic, where it's so severe, that that, may, that might be the most prudent thing to do. Like, forgiveness only requires one party, right? And, and, and as Christians, we're responsible to forgive as we have been forgiven in Christ. And so, like, like that, that's part of our duty as Christians is to forgive as we have been forgiven, but sometimes wisdom and prudence looks like separating, parting ways with that party. But reconciliation, on the other hand, is different because it doesn't just part ways. Reconciliation, actually, let's come back together. See, reconciliation requires forgiveness, but it, but it ends with an invitation back into relationship with the other person. And this can only happen if both parties acknowledge their faults. If both parties are willing to work through their wrongdoing, to address their sin, and to pursue change. Now, this is really just ordinary language for what the, the, Bible, the word the Bible uses is, is repentance. See, forgiveness doesn't require the repentance of the other person. Reconciliation requires mutual repentance. Say, hey, I wronged you. I, I messed up. Will you forgive me? And, and, and I actually am going to change the way that I act toward you now. I'm, go, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to enter into a godly relationship with you now. And so this is what repentance is. We confess our sins. We turn from it. We live differently. And, and in doing so, we, we reconcile our relational books, so to speak, right? That, that term accountants use to reconcile the books, right? It's to, to make sure the accounts line up, that, that nothing's off, that there's no indiscrepancies, that we're even across the board. And so this is what reconcil- the, the relational accounts are shored up in a way where we can transact once again, and in doing this and, and having this, this acknowledgement of wrong, the, the acknowledgement, the change of heart, change of action, and re-engagement, this fortifies these relationships. I, I'm willing to bet that some of your strongest relationships are not the, the relationships that have lacked conflict, 
but the relationships that have faced conflict and have mended and are now stronger because of that, right? Think of your marriage. If you never have conflict in your marriage, right, there's a depth that you're lacking because there is a grace in reconciling. And so this, this idea of reconciliation it, it, it exposes the weaknesses and strengthens it. It's like a broken bone, right? Our bones are pretty strong. If you break a bone and it gets set right, it's likely to heal. And when it heals, it's probably gonna be stronger than the rest of your bones. It's, it's unlikely that it will break in the same exact spot again if it's set right. The same idea with relationships. That If it's set right, if it's reconciled, if it fits back together again, then it's stronger than ever. Now, verse 20 is, is telling us, what it's speaking to is this is precisely what Jesus does only on a cosmic scale. He's pursuing reconciliation. He, he takes a look at the mess that we made, and like, if you want to trace it back to Adam and Eve, they're responsible, but we're culpable too. Like, we've rejected, we've sidestepped the preeminence of Jesus, and because of it, we've made a mess of our lives We've experienced brokenness and dysfunction, and so he takes a look at this mess that we made, and, and it's not his mess. Like, J- Jesus isn't responsible. Jesus always does what's good, right, and perfect, and so there's no blame upon him, and so, yet anyway, he steps into it. The mess that we were incapable of fixing ourselves, and that's just one of the things that like, religion tells you, you can fix yourself, right? Be a good person, do the right things, make wise decisions. That's not bad, but that won't fix you. That that won't fix the the brokenness that sin has brought into your life. And even thinking that you can do that is actually a sin. Because like we say, nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, we're incapable of reversing this mess. And so Jesus moves towards us. He steps into the mess with us. It's so interesting, the, the word dwell that we see in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that, 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 that invokes a, a memory, if you're familiar with our Bible, of when Jesus was to dwell with his people. In fact, that's, that's always been God's intention, is to dwell with his people. In the Garden of Eden, he dwelled with his people. In the Exodus, what, what did God gave him instructions about the tabernacle, to set up this tabernacle, and then later the temple where God would dwell in the Holy of Holies, that God would dwell among his people. Now Jesus, the fullness of God, dwells in the flesh. And so Jesus moves into this world and the fullness of God with him. Now one of the things to to, to know is like this, this language of dwelling, it wasn't just about dwelling with God's people, like God being in the tabernacle or being tabernacled in the holy of holies, In order to have that relationship between God and his people, there had to be some sort of atonement for the wrong that's been done. And that's why, so in the temple, you have the Holy of Holies where God dwells, but to enter into that place, there was a huge altar where sacrifices would take place. In order to pass through, there was a cleansing, there was atonement, there were sacrifices that had to be made to enter into, and even then, only one time a year could the the, the priest enter into the Holy of Holies on behalf of all the people. But now here we see Jesus with the fullness of God dwelling in him, the the true living temple, right? Jesus makes this acknowledgement that he's the temple. He says, this temple will be destroyed in three days and I'll build it again. Or it'll be destroyed in three days and I'll build it again. 
And so here Jesus dwells, the, the presence of God dwells in creation. And he's saying that I want to restore you back how things were, take you back to, to before the fall happened in Genesis chapter three, where there's this harmony, tranquility. And you think that there would be some sort of welcoming committee when Jesus enters the earth, but the best that we can do is give him a, an animal's trough to lay in as a baby in the manger. And after 33 years, it didn't get much better because at the hand of the, the people who he came to save, he was crucified. He was killed. Like This is one of the least flattering moments in human history, and there have been a lot of terrible moments in human history. But this is the least flattering of them all. But here we see the power of God. We see the beauty of his plan and his, his, the way that he uses our terrible decisions. And God uses this to redeem mankind, that Jesus becomes the ultimate sacrifice. That not only is Jesus the temple where God dwells, but Jesus is the sacrifice that gives us access to the presence of God. See, Jesus, by his blood that was shed on the cross, he served as this, this ultimate sacrifice to atone for our sins and all the futility that we have brought upon ourselves. That's why verse 20 says, through him, through Jesus, he brings reconciliation by the blood of the cross. Now this means that Jesus' blood is the antidote. Jesus' blood is the, the healing balm for what has been broken because of our reckless rebellion or dismissal of Jesus' supremacy in all of the universe. Isaiah 53, 5 points us to this reality. It tells us he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now, both Isaiah and Paul point to, to the result of this cross. See, it, it tells us what the cross accomplishes for us. It's a result that we have peace with God. And see, that's the aim. That's the target of reconciliation, to have peace, specifically peace with God. And, and the way that the Bible speaks about peace, it, it isn't merely a lack of conflict, Right, we, we, we talk in humanity, you know, in, in our human existence, we talk about uh, wartime and peacetime, right? Pe like, there's always conflict between countries going on. Right? It, it's always existent. That's not the type of peace. That's, that's a superficial piece of this peacetime era. See, Jesus wants to offer us something more substantial, something that, that actually is deeper than a lack of conflict. What he's getting to is he wants to give us this shalom. That's the, word, the Hebrew word that's used for peace. And this word represents more than just a lack of conflict. It, it gets to this idea of wholeness, that, that everything is whole. Nothing, is, nothing has been... Um, Nothing has fallen apart, nothing has been decrepit, nothing has, has been ruined, that everything is whole and as it ought to be. And because of this, there is a harmony through all things, that there's a harmony between God and his creation, between creation and other creation, like man and man, between man and his world that he inhabits, that there's a sense of flourishing, that there's prosperity and welfare and tranquility, that to borrow uh, uh, lyrics from Radiohead, everything's in its right place. 
See, that, that's, that's the vision that God has in reconciliation, that everything is as it ought to be. Everything has peace with God. Now, when we talk about this peace with God, typically our thoughts on the matter only extend to our relationship with God. See, this is where the challenge came for me this week in talking about peace. I wrote a whole sermon for next week already talking about peace with God and man. I had to scrap it because, listen, that, that's not what this passage is, is getting after. In fact, Romans 5 will, will attest to that. In fact, the next verses, verses 21 and, and on, will attest to this relationship that's been reconciled between us and God. And we're gonna dig into that more next week. But, but verse 20 says the range of reconciliation doesn't just end with a, a personal relationship being reconciled between God and man. It's so much more than that. The gospel is bigger than just getting me right with God. See, what Jesus was doing in shedding his own blood was reconciling all things to himself. Remember, if you remember back to last week or even as, as we had it read this morning, verses 15, like repeated over and over, probably like six or seven times is this idea of like all things, everything, all thing was created by him and for him and through him. All things are held together by him. Everything he's before, all, like all things is just this drum that Paul beats over and over through verses 15 and 18, that every single molecule has been created. It has its origins in and through and for Jesus. Now the fall, as I've already said, has affected everything. That there's not one square inch of creation that hasn't been affected by sin entering this world. That, that Romans 8 tells us that all creation groans with the longing for what is to come. It groans in, in like childbearing. That, that something better is coming and we're not quite there yet. And verse 20 tells us that now all things are reconciled by the blood of Jesus. Now, it's just not, it's not only, not exclusively a human matter where it's like me and God are now squared up. That's true, right, next week. But it goes beyond that. It steps into the world of spiritual and the physical. See, Christianity is not a, a Gnostic religion where, where we affirm the goodness of the spirit, like spiritual matters are good and physical things are bad. That, that's not... It's not the Christian message because Jesus declares himself as Lord of all, the, the, the preeminent sustainer and creator of all things. So all things are good, both spiritual and physical. All belongs to Jesus. And we, when he redeems us, not only does he redeem us spiritually, but physically as well, that, that we will receive resurrected bodies in the new heavens and new earth. That we are gonna step foot into a new creation like a physical world, like that, the idea of heaven being some sort of nebulous floating around um, heavenly spiritual, like I don't think that's, that's not, it's not the heaven the Bible portrays. It's the new heavens, new earth is a physical place where heaven comes down and meets the earth. And in the same way that the spiritual world is renewed by Jesus, that our hearts are transformed by him, so too is the physical world that Jesus created. Like, there will be a new heavens and new earth. 
that everything in the new heavens, new earth will actually pass through the redeeming blood of Jesus. Every tree, every rock, every mountain, every stream. And the chaos and and the futility of the fallen world will will disappear. It won't be the same. So that, that means like there won't be avalanches anymore that devastate people and towns. The seas will no longer billow and roar. The chaos of the seas will be subdued. The effects that we have had on this world. I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to convince you that there's global warming, but we're doing something to this world. All of that stuff, whew, Jesus renews it. He clears the slate. The hostility that we experience Isaiah eleven six says that that wolf will lay down with lamb, that the cheetah will interact with a goat without eating it, that that a child will stick his hand into a cobra's den and not experience any sort of pain. Like there there is there is a reconciliation across the board that happens through the blood of Jesus. Now that means a couple things. No longer is there need for insurance companies. No longer is the Red Cross necessary for disaster relief. No longer are there potholes in our city streets. In fact, the city streets are going to be made of gold. There's no rust that builds up. I don't even know if we'll need cars. Maybe we fly everywhere. I'm not sure. But I know that every trace of of decay, every, every place where there has been some sort of compromise in the created world is going to be restored and remade. All of the traces of the fall will be gone. In fact, Jesus, in his final proclamation of of Revelation chapter 21, or upon his final proclamations, one of them, is that he says, behold, I am making all things new. Right? This means more than just humanity being made new. It's all things, every molecule, every atom, every object, and it's not just the visible things, it's also the invisible. And it, it, to, to make this connection, you have to go back to verse 15 where he speaks of the, the authorities and the powers and the invisible um, systems of this world that have been created. See, the blood of Jesus renews the systems and the structures that we all experience, that we're all part of, but have been corrupted by sin. And sometimes we don't realize the systems that we're part of, but you, like we're part of a system. There's a legal system. There's a a social system. There's work, employer-employee relationships and dynamics. There there are dynamics within the household. All of these places experience the renewal and the recreation and the reconciliation. Now, I told you I was gonna make these connections here because it's one thing to say reconciliation and and another thing to say renewal. But here's this. The Old Testament... The, the whole point of the temple was to create this reconciliation, how, how God and man could be made right together through the act of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, Israel had this longing, not just for those sacrifices to keep coming, but one day where the nation of Israel would be restored to its former glory, right? To be restored, to be reconciled in a way where all things are made new. So this isn't just a New Testament idea of the renewal of all things. It has roots in the Old Testament. And so this this connection between reconciliation and renewal are so close because in order to be reconciled, like we talked about earlier, change has to take place. 
it's by the blood of Jesus, the means of change is offered to us. And when the blood of Jesus covers these systems and structures, we start to see some transformation here. Because the fall has affected all of these things, right? Work, one of the implications of the fall was now the ground is cursed, work is gonna be hard for Adam, right? And so since Genesis chapter three, there's been this, this imbalance between our work and rest relationship. Either we're, we're too lazy and we don't give ourselves honestly to work or we make work an idol as a means to, to create our own identity, to find our own peace, to make our own comfort. And, and so we elevate work to a place where maybe only God ought to occupy You see this within politics, right? The way that people organize and interact with one another. Right now, like, at least to my recollection, that, like, our, our society is more divided than it is united, it feels like. And maybe that's just me. Maybe you feel that way. But, like, why is that? Well, tra- trace it back. It's because of sin. And so instead of listening and hearing each other out, we just put our feet in the ground and we plant it. It's like, you know, I could be wrong. Like, I just feel like there's a lot of gain that could come from people just taking a moment of humility and say, maybe I'm wrong. Let me hear you out. Let me hear what your side has to say. Instead of putting up these walls and pointing the finger and blaming, right? It's just ugly right now. Or even like social injustice. There's systemic poverty, right? The systems that are in place, unfortunately, are, are, are here and they allow those who are rich to stay rich and the poor to stay poor. Like it's really hard for someone who has come from a line of poverty to take themselves and elevate out themselves out of this, this poverty demographic into the median, it's so hard. There are so many things that are working against them. And, and as middle-class people, sometimes we just lack the sympathy, the empathy to think about what it would be like to be in their place. And we just say, man, they should just figure it out. But what if we actually had Jesus' heart for the poor in our city? Like, what, what, if, what if as Christians we had a burden for the systemic poverty that's going on and we wanted to do something about Or what about racism? Like in the new heavens, new earth, every tongue, every tribe, every nation comes together. Like we have a tumultuous history racially. Now some parts of the country are way more severe than other parts of the country, but it still exists. There's racial prejudices. There is such thing as privilege Right? You can, whether it's because of your whiteness or because of middle class, there is this reality where, where there are differences and there are challenges to, to seeing people mingled and, and merged together as one. And the church is a place where this is meant to happen. Or, or even take that concept and, and move it into classism, the socioeconomic status. Man, there's just so many places where the fall has affected that we're, like, it's going on. We don't, maybe we don't recognize it, but it's there. And one of the things that we need to be aware of as Christians is the fact that it's there. 
And we participate in it sometimes knowingly and sometimes unknowingly. But this is shedding a light on it for us. These things will be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Now, right now, it's not fully realized. Like these systems, those, they're not fully realized until Jesus returns. But right now, he is working on these things. He's renewing all things. And I think this is incredibly exciting. You think about it, like, what would Moline be like? What would Rock Island be like? What would Milan be like if the blood of, if everything passed through the redeeming blood of Jesus? What kind of neighborhoods would we have? What kind of schools would we have? Like, just think, think of that. Like, what would the effect that Jesus would have on our whole city? Now, listen, I get excited about that. Thinking about Jesus is renewing the city of Moline. Now, the question is, what should our response to this be? Do we just hang tight until it all happens, till history sort of unfolds and we get to the other side of, of this creation and the beginning of the new heavens, new earth, and you know, just sit tight, hold back. Jesus has got this under control. No, that's, that's not what we do. We are called to participate with Jesus in his renewal, in his making of all things new. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 talks about that Christ reconciled us to himself, and then in reconciling us to himself, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, that means we function as missionaries. We're trying to connect other people to God as we've been connected to God, that we've been reconciled to God, but it's also more than that. Again, that's a spiritual realm. There's also a physical reality to this, that we are in this city to participate with Jesus in the renewal of all things. It's crazy that the Jesus, the God who is pleased to dwell in his fullness in Christ, this Christ now dwells within us. Right? That's what happens. You put your faith in Jesus, you trust in Jesus. Jesus now occupies space in your very heart, so he is working through you for his mission. He's working to renew the city. And this, this is really a big part of Sacred City. Our own mission, our vision is to make disciples, plant churches, renew the city. I think that the last part, to renew the city, is maybe the most abstract of the three pieces that we say we're here to do. Right? And so I just want to unpack this just as I close here. What does this mean? What does it look like if God has reconciled us to himself, if Jesus is reconciling all things to himself and one day everything will be made right, what does it look like for us to participate that in, in that work here and now? Let me, let me break this down in a couple places. First, in the arena of work. Now, first of all, the concept of work gets redeemed. Because, because as Midwesterners, we like to prove ourselves, prove our worth, create our identity in what we do. And instead of taking that approach, work is now a tool where we get to exercise our identities which we've received in Christ. So work is no longer a way for us to define ourselves. We have been defined by Christ, and now we are vocationally employed for Christ's services. But then what does it look like in the 40 to 50 hours a week that we're at work? Now, again, there's a mentality shift here. For Christians, work is not just about punching a clock and getting a paycheck. Work is now viewed as a vocation, a calling. And maybe that's not gonna be your life calling. You know, maybe you're, you're working someplace where you know this is just a stepping stone to get to what I hope to do later down the road. That's fine. But for right now, you've been called to the place where you are. It's a vocation. 
Whether that's teaching or in sales, you're staying at home with the kids, doing homemaking, you're building buildings, you're doing accounting work, you're studying at school, whatever it is, you have been called there, you've been placed there by God and you have been put there as an agent of reconciliation. You were placed there to bring renewal. So this is like, this is where Christian imagination is so helpful. In fact, we can't carry out the mission of the church without having a Christian imagination, at least asking the question of what would it look like if Jesus had my job? If Jesus came to the world to, to serve and not to be served, what would it like if I entered my job as a servant? Like, how would I, how would I regard my boss? Right, maybe you've got a jerk of a boss, but how does this dynamic, this relationship between employer and employee, how does that get reconciled? At least the concept of it. I mean, later on, Paul is going to unpack this even more in, ver- in chapters, um, chapter three. What about my quality of service? Whatever you're doing, you're creating something. You're, 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 get, you're providing a service. You're making a... Uh, uh, can't think of a word. Um, providing service or you're creating something to, to be used. If Jesus is redeeming my work, like that means that we should be putting out the best. Right? That, that means that excellence should be what we're striving for in our workplace. Not just meeting the, the status quo, not fulfilling the minimum objectives, but, but actually going and working as unto the Lord. What kind of work environment would we create? I remember working, I was bad at this. When I worked at Target, I would just go, show up, punch the clock. I wouldn't want to deal with anybody else. And it was just sort of cold and distant, impersonal. But what what would it look like if we just like stepped into that and actually were present? Like actually engaging with people who are in the break room with us or we're doing projects with side to side. See, there's beauty in this. The product of reconciliation is this beauty. But what about, what about with um, social matters? Politically speaking, I, if, if Jesus is renewing all things, that means our, our political identity, that our, our political values and ideals are being washed by the blood of Jesus. Now, what that means is we don't just adopt a red or blue worldview. It means that all of our cultural assumptions, all of our ideas get passed through a biblical worldview, regardless of what party you're on. There is not a a Christian party, but as Christians, we take responsibility. Taking those ideas, does it pass through a biblical worldview? Or even the way that we interact with people who disagree with us, right? We, We do so in an honorable and in a civil way. Within our city, this means we we contribute to the places that best serve our city. Now, that might mean different things for different people, but but I think there are a lot of nonprofits in our city that are doing really good work. Some of them are are faith-based, some of them are not, but it's good work, and it's worth investing ourselves there, whether that's a nonprofit board or being part of a PTA or a neighborhood association, giving ourselves to the places that matter the most, contributing Even socioeconomically, we we provide for, we serve, we aid those who are poor and disenfranchised. We don't don't practice partiality. 
Right? We, we use our resources as a means to bless and to elevate others racially. This means we check our prejudices at the door. Like, tolerance is such a small, such a small goal. Like, just to tolerate one another. It's, no, we, the Christian gospel fights for racial inclusion and reconciliation. Like, the, and people, like, you, you approach the Bible, like, I don't see anything about racial reconciliation or, like, whites and blacks or whites and Native Americans where there has been conflict in the past. But, but really, all throughout the scriptures, the dynamics between Jews and the Greeks, same thing, right? There's no longer Greek nor Jew nor male nor female. These, these societal structures, there is reconciliation now through the blood of Jesus Christ. Gender dynamics, means that we do not adopt the definition of masculinity or femininity from our culture. We look to scriptures. What does Jesus say biblical masculinity looks like? What's biblical femininity? And we, we shape ourselves around those ideals and values, and those are the type of people that we, can, we set out to become. Even within... Godly relationships. So many of our male to female, female to male relationships are, are just ungodly, right? Men objectifying women using sexuality as a means to manipulate. But here under the blood of Jesus, there is no longer this need to be manipulated or to objectify. But there's this, this now we're brothers and sisters in the faith. Gender dynamics are redeemed by the blood of, the, of Jesus. All of these things follow under the all category of what Jesus is making new. And Christians should be on the cutting edge of this work as Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. And listen to this. This is the last thing I gotta say. If we want to renew this city, if we wanna be part of the work that Jesus is doing and renewing all things in the city of Moline, in the city of Rock Island, it begins with our home. Family dynamics are the starting point where Jesus wants to redeem us. Now, some of us have come from abusive or un unhealthy homes, like weird parent-child dynamics, unhealthy, abusive, whatever that might be, because sin is ugly. It has these lingering effects that trickle down, right? We, we've seen um, siblings just bounce, leave, and say, I don't want anything to do with you. Sin is ugly and has caused all kinds of familial fallout. There's generational sin that just goes down the bloodlines. And with generational sin, there's always a choice. Do I perpetuate this sin? Do, do I adopt this and just this is the mode of operation that I'm gonna have for my family or am I gonna reject it and see that the blood of Jesus is redeeming? He's, he's making this relationship brand new in a way where we can break the cycle. Now think of this in terms of marriage. I feel like the way that marriage is portrayed on media right now is just nasty. You got the dumb husband and the, the smart manipulative wife or you've got this hyper-masculine guy who's belittling, like it's just, there's not very many godly portrayals of marriage in the social media streams or the media streams of, of content that we're consuming. And so it just sort of becomes a cultural norm that there's just this um, tolerated dysfunction between husband and wives. 
that's not God's vision. Like, dysfunctional tolerance is not God's vision for marriage. Beautiful harmony, right? This, this wholeness that's meant to be had, this, this delight and joy in one another, this intimacy that's meant to be had, and that takes work. That means you're gonna, you're gonna need to set special time aside to pursue your wife, men. You're gonna need to make time for a date night. This also means that, that we're gonna honor the concept of marriage. Like, Hebrews talks about not defiling the marriage bed. It's not, that, that, that's sort of a, a shorthand. Don't, don't make little of marriage. If you're cohabitating with someone that's not your spouse, you're, you're, you're minimizing the beauty of marriage. Jesus' blood needs to redeem that in your life. And it might look like moving out for a season, or it might look like, let's get married now. Let's honor Jesus right now. It redeems marriage. Family, parents. Through scriptures, there has to be this warning for, for parents, specifically fathers, not to provoke your children to anger. Like th- there is a, a dissettling of relationship between parents and their children. And, and, and like, it's nothing new. There's always been rebellion, kids rebelling against parents. But listen, in a Christian household, like what does godly parenting look like? What does it look like for parenting to be washed by the blood of Jesus? It means that we don't domineer or manipulate our kids. Yes, we, we set ground rules. We exercise our God-given authority, but we don't do so in a way that belittles or minimizes the personhood of our kids. It means we don't provoke our children to anger. We are going to have to execute discipline, but we do so in a God-honoring way because God does that with us. And for Christian kids, it means that we, we obey the commandment that Jesus gives us. Children, honor your father and your mother that it will go well for you. Right? Obey them. See, it, it doesn't take... You know, it doesn't take anything to be a rebel these days. Like, everybody's a rebel. Everybody's pushing against the system. Everybody's doing their own. Like, what it really takes to be a rebel is to, like, listen to God. Like, you want to be a rebel? Honor your father and your mother. Obey them. If we're apathetic about our city... If we're apathetic, if we don't have a vision for a city and a Christian imagination isn't stirred at this idea that Jesus is making all things new, then our our, our version of the gospel, our understanding of the gospel is too small because everything comes under the lordship of Jesus. All things are reconciled by his blood. Jesus says, I am Lord of all. I am making all things new, both physical and spiritual, visible and invisible. It means the city of Moline the United States and our world will be restored one day. It'll pass through the blood of Jesus and it will be restored to him and experience harmony and flourishing. And the good news for us is as we give ourselves to this work, everything that we do in the name of Jesus will last for eternity. That's the power of the blood of Jesus. It's not something that we do we, we had this confession this morning. It's not about what we do and what we bring to the table. It's the fact that Jesus has done it all. He has reconciled us to God and he has made us ministers of reconciliation. And it's through him we as humans and all things 
Find true shalom. Creation becomes a place, once again, where God can dwell with his people. Not, not, not a man-made area, but through the power and the blood of Jesus. See, this is the scope of the gospel. All things reconciled. And now we come to the Lord's table, which is a physical reminder of both a spiritual and physical reality of reconciliation. That through the body, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, this is making all things new. Here in the sacrament, here in Jesus, we find our sustenance as we set out to work for the renewal of our city. And by his grace, and by a movement of the spirit, we can see this corner of our world renewed by the blood of Jesus. That's what I'm praying for. I hope your, your prayers are directed toward this as well. To see the neighborhoods of Moli, to see the, the places where we work renewed by the blood of Jesus. This is the power that it has. Father, we thank you for your gospel that is not small but big. It's not so big that we get left behind, but we are remembered and and our sins are atoned for that you have made a way for us, but you also have made a way for all creation. Father, give us a big vision for our city. Give us a, a, a desire to pray big prayers, to see this city and far beyond renewed to the glory of Jesus, Father, and to see things to come under your lordship. We thank you for this reconciliation. We thank you for the power that your blood affords to recreate and make us new. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.